Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth. Thank you for joining me. We are going to pick up where we left off in the Old Testament with the book of 1 Samuel, and we've made it to chapter 18. Basically two-thirds of the way through it before we move on to the next book, God willing. If you want to read along with me, we're going to begin with verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So we discussed this earlier when Jonathan was mentioned that he seems to be um, uh, in a plain English gay relationship with the David, same David and Goliath David. Um, that seems to be who, who Jonathan's going to play out to be. And that's just the way it reads to me, since we're going to eventually get to a point, if we get to that point in the narrative where they're going to be kissing. And that's usually something only men in a gay relationship do or bisexual at best but we're here at this point now so we won't get ahead of ourselves um but that's who we're talking about we're talking about david the same david and goliath david we're talking about jonathan his what reads to be his lover um and saul is um uh, jonathan's father he's also the first king of israel we know jesus is known as the king of israel that's what they crucified him for um, uh, they proclaimed him to be, um, because that was considered sedition, just like January 6th is considered sedition, although you'd never be able to tell that by the way the people who pulled it off or tried to pull it off are being treated. They're not being treated like the Black Lives Matter protesters were greeted with uh, barbarous assaults, beaten and attacked and dragged through the mud and made to the number one enemy of the country. They're not getting treated with any of that, even though they publicly said that that was their effort to overturn the election, to disrupt the the business of Congress, and to um, basically act as traitors to the country. They aren't getting treated like that at all. If they were getting treated the way they believe government should be treated, they would all be hanged by now, not two years later still pretending to go after them with the lightest charges possible while letting the majority of them get away with it. Because uh, remember, they may have arrested hundreds of people, but there were thousands of people there in on January 6th. And again, you'd never know it, by the way. Democrats and Republicans are pursuing it. The best they're doing now is that whole January 6th committee, which doesn't even hold any criminal uh, weight to it. It's, it seems to be voluntary subpoena, subpoenas being issued where people can uh, comply with them or not. You see Steve Bannon didn't comply with this. He's still walking around free. How often do you see that happen with black people? You don't see it happen with black people. You just don't. Um, but anyway, we're back to um, verse eight, verse, chapter 18. So now we know who we're talking about. We're moving on to verse two. Well, verse one, before we move on from verse one, it does seem to be implying that in that moment, David and Jonathan, that's where their love began. Verse two, Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So uh, we read previously where Saul sort of uh, enlisted David into his um, employ to be his musician whenever he'd have what's described as a distressing spirit overtake him. Um, it seems to be some sort of mania that would overtake him. And the way the last couple of chapters have read, it seems like he also was suffering from some other mental illness like dementia but because his memory didn't seem all quite there but it, whatever the case may be now it's saying that he's officially taken david as um um completely and not letting david go back home to his father jesse anymore 
verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So there it is again, mentioning the love that Jonathan and David had for each other. And it sounds like a lot more than just buddies and good friends. Like I said, we're going to get to, if you read ahead, you'll see that how close and intimate their relationship is. Although churches don't generally discuss it at all. It's sort of just glazed over because it goes into other things that people in churches and religious leadership um, aren't all that comfortable with people accepting and being comfortable with for some crazy reason. Um, uh, but it's not all that crazy. It's to control the narrative and control people like a herd and keep people locked into believing and thinking one thing so that people can always look at, uh, at someone else as the other and use them as the boogeyman. Um, but we'll get into that as we get going. So let's just keep reading for now. Verse three. So um, verse two is just affirming how closely uh, David and John, how close David and Jonathan got. Um, loving him as his own soul. You don't usually do that with just friends. I mean, you can. There are some friends you may love that way. But generally, when people people have love that strong, it's the person you're married to or in a relationship with. Verse 4, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So again, sounds very intimate. Jonathan's taking his own clothes off and giving them to David. Um, even though Jonathan's in, Jonathan is in the superior condi uh, position because he's the king's son, David is at best his musician or I guess even more exalted would be one of his main warriors since he just he, since he was able to just uh, defeat Goliath, the terror to the kingdom. Um, whatever the case may be, Jonathan's giving him his clothes and even his armor. Verse four. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on. Oh, sorry, read that. Jonathan's giving it all, his clothes, his armor, even his sword. Verse five. So David went out wherever Saul went. Sorry. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So it's basically describing how David rose to prominence among everyone, among the warriors and among the um, servants. He was popular politically. Um, verse 6, now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing uh, to meet King. To meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So this narrative kind of is a little suspect, since it sounds like the people have already gotten themselves together to celebrate the um, defeat of Goliath, because that's the Philistine they're talking about, the slaughter of the Philistine. They're talking about Goliath, the giant, who was basically terrorizing them. But how it is that all of the people are now suddenly singing and dancing and ready to greet King Saul, even though he wasn't the one who was uh, leader of the battle and definitely wasn't the one who pulled off the defeat. It doesn't quite make sense, but it is how it reads. So as always, we're just reading it to get an understanding. So as they're getting into the town, uh, heading back home, the people are basically celebrating the victory. Verse seven, so the women sang as they danced and said, 
Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So again, how they were able to come up with lyrics for a song of celebration all that quickly doesn't quite make sense to me since the battle just happened and it just ended and it was sort of a sudden and uh, a sudden victory that was kind of unexpected because of the description of David and the description of Goliath. But again, it's how it reads. So let's keep reading. They're rejoicing over the victory and attributing thousands to Saul, the king, him and him defeating thousands. And they're attributing 10,000s to his servant, David. Verse 8, then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David 10,000s. And to me, they've ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So just like that, um, the envy the, or jealousy, however you want to think of it, is stirred up in Saul. He's not pleased with the fact that the people are giving David, the um, his servant, credit for bigger victories than him, the king, Saul. Verse 9, and he said at the end of that verse, he's saying, so now that they're giving him all that credit, what's left for him to get except for the kingdom? Meaning he, I would think that in his heart, he's thinking he must be the one that um, Samuel prophesied would be the next leader of the people since he'd already been told that his kingdom was up, his time for his kingdom was up and that the Lord had already chosen a replacement for him. So almost certainly that's what he's thinking, that David must be that replacement. Verse 9, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. So again, he was given the prophecy already that because of a previous thing that he did that was considered unfaithful, um, being condemned, Samuel, the prophet, the high priest in, in, uh, who they looked to for religious guidance, uh, already let him know that the clock was ticking. Verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. So like I mentioned earlier, the distressing spirit, it doesn't get much description of it, but it sounds again like some sort of mental illness and um, mania um, swooping down on Saul. Maybe something like manic depression, some sort of mood disorder that seems to be, be the way it reads. Um, that he suffers from, whatever the case may be, it's calling it a distressing spirit. And he'd have those attacks of that distress. And like I said previously, David would play music for him and that would help settle him down, calm his spirit, ease his stress. Uh, so that's what's happened in this verse. And in this verse, he also has arm, arms near him, a weapon nearby, Saul that is. Verse 11, and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped his presence twice. So Saul's going through his episode and while he's dealing with his mental stress, he's um, playing cat and mouse games with the one who's there to help him with it, David, the one, the musician. He's using his spear and throwing it at him like a javelin and trying to pin him to the wall with the spear. Uh, Cold-blooded. Uh, and he did it twice then at that point. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So that's just talking about what I we were talking about previously about Samuel letting Saul know because he displeased the Lord. Now his time was up as king. 
and there's a replacement already chosen. Um, and that's the departure from um, Saul that's being discussed there. I think that's what it's referring to. Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So Saul couldn't stand the presence of David knowing that um, uh, the time for his reign was nearing an end. There was a replacement already chosen and the people are very fond of David. So he basically ordered him to stay out of his sight and let him instead be someone who interacted more often with the people like a diplomat. Verse 14, and David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. So a lot of the things we read in this chapter and about David in general seem to be um, very, very, very flattering toward him. Um, even though we're going to read, again, God willing, we get to those points in the in the books of the Bible, um, that some of his behavior was downright scandalous and even very scoundrel type behavior. But so far, he's being given credit for being very upright, being very brave, and um, being very good looking also, we've read. Um, so in this at this point, though, verse 14, so far his ways are pleasing to the Lord, according to the narrator here. Uh, verse 15, therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. So, excuse me. So the fact that um, David is finding favor with the people and also behaving wisely so that it seems to be pleasing to everyone around Saul, um, it's bothering him and it, it's making him afraid probably again because he knows that there's already a replacement lined up um, for his place in the kingdom. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So again, we noticed before how now they're not being referred to as one group um, anymore. Uh, though when they say the Hebrews, it's talking about the all of the tribes together. If it says the Israelites, it's generally talking about all the tribes together. But now, at least this is the, at least the second time that I can recall, now they're being pronounced as two separate groups. And it seems to have, it, it seems to me the way it reads is related to the fact that David has been introduced into the story. And like we've read previously, or like we talked about previously, um, the it's going to be divided. The tribes are going to be divided and, and basically have been divided into two major groups. One, uh, considered the uh, children of Israel, not the children of Israel, Israel, um, but not all the tribes, just all, almost all the tribes except one. And then the children of Judah, the tribe of Judah, as one separate tribe by itself, even though it is one of the tribes also. But for, like I said, for whatever reason, Judah is separated as its tribe. And again, I think it's related to the fact that David, Solomon, and what's going to happen with them later on, as far as the kingdoms go. Um, so that's what they're talking about here when it says all Israel and Judah. They're all Israelites. They're all Hebrews. They're all just uh, groups of the same tribe, but for whatever reason, Judah is being separated as its own tribe. And it's a large one, according to how we've read it so far, um, but it's still just one of the other tribe, tribes also. Um, verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merab. 
I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So this is an interesting verse because we read previously that Saul had already promised to give whoever defeated Goliath, the giant, his daughter. Uh, and apparently he has more than one. Michael was the other one. It's a man's name in modern times. And I may be pronouncing it wrong, so forgive me if I am, or any of these names, obviously. But um, Michael was one of the daughters, and Merab is the other one. And he's now offering Merab to David as a, basically a prize, you know, because again, women are property at this point and throughout the Old Testament and even into the New um so he's giving, he's offering her to David for um, his service, and also, um, also as with the with the thought that instead of him being the one to be trying to go after David and kill him, he rather just let the Philistines as a whole army go after him and be the ones to take David out of the picture for him. Verse eighteen. So David said to Saul, "Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel?" that I should be son-in-law to the king. So uh, was David really that humble? I don't know. It's it's the way it reads and that he's saying that. But like I said, previously, the promise was made to anyone who did it, that if they killed Goliath, they would get one of his daughters and uh, several other prizes for their service in defeating Goliath. And yet there was no more mention of the daughter being given to David since he's the one who pulled off the victory or any of the other things that were to go along with it. But um, presumably some of those things were given to David since he seems to be seems to have risen in prominence among the people and uh, in Saul's government. Um, but here he's saying, well, he's it's basically he's giving the humble pie answer of, oh, he's not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. Uh, verse 19, but it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. So again, the other daughter was already offered. Well, I guess we'll probably read about it more now that I'm taking a glance at the next verse. But at this point, Merab was supposed to be given to David, and yet it seems she wasn't. Uh, she was given to someone else, because again, their property uh, to someone else altogether. And it says at the time that she was supposed to um, uh, and should have been given to David. So I'm not sure why that is. Maybe he did go ahead and perform some sort of um, battle or other victory that isn't, that I must have read over, or maybe isn't mentioned here, that it, that she's presumed to have been David's. But uh, whatever the case may be, she wasn't given to David. Instead, she was given to someone else. Verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So um, Michael is the one that was mentioned previously, and um, apparently she is interested in being with David, and Saul is glad about that. Verse 21, so Saul said, I'll give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be, may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. So Saul's being phony and telling David that he wants him to be his son-in-law by marrying off one of his daughters. Merab already was given to someone else. And Michael, the one who's interested in David, 
who also, again, was promised whoever defeated Goliath in the first place, they would get her anyway. For some reason, again, that hasn't, that's been glazed over and overlooked, but now it pleases Saul to give his daughter to David, Michael to David, um, but not for anything, um, uh, not for any good and noble reasons, but instead he wants her to be a snare or a trap for David. Why he'd want to use his daughter that way, I don't know. Um, but apparently his envy of David is just that strong that he's willing to even use his uh, own children, his own daughter that way. Um, but it seems to me if he was going to use anything to try to get David, why wouldn't he use his son, Jonathan, since that's whose soul seems to be knitted to David's. And now that I think about it, um, uh, that is going to come into play later on into as we keep reading into the chapters, into the narrative. Um, but we're here now, so let's pick up where we left off. Verse 22, And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So now Saul's plotting even further, trying to get his servants, his other servants, to butter David up and get him to go ahead and agree to um, marry his daughter, um, Michael. And again, this sounds kind of suspect how this is written since Saul is the king. He wouldn't have to beg or plot or plead or um, uh, any of that to get someone to marry his daughter. Even if the person did uh, act real humble and all that, he's the king. He could pretty much order that to be done, I would think, and um, force the situation if he wanted to. It's not like anyone in the kingdom would have any right to um, object to what it is he demands. But it's written as if David has already um, assumed some sort of power or um, authority over what's happening in the kingdom. But whatever the case may be, Saul is trying to secretly plot to get people to convince David to go ahead and marry his daughter-in-law. Verse 20, his daughter, excuse me. Verse 23, so Saul's servant spoke these, those words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Seeing I'm, I am light, seeing light, seeing, let me see how we can read this. So, okay, so Saul's servant spoke these those words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Seeing Okay, so I'll just stop it there, uh, to be a king's son-in-law. The rest of it you can read yourself, and if you've read with me before, you'll know why. Um, um, so we'll take it bit by bit. So first, David is doing the humble pie routine again about, oh, it's such a big responsibility to be the king's son-in-law, whereas most other people, especially if he's as poor and lightly esteemed as he says, would jump at the opportunity to get uh, raised up in the public eye or at least lift it up out of the poverty, even if you don't want to be a public figure. But David seems to be saying, oh no, he's just the poor shepherd. Oh no, he's, he, he doesn't mean anything. He doesn't have the, uh, the um, clout or nobility to be the king's son-in-law or any of that. He's saying that as his response to the people asking him, telling him, urging him to go ahead and marry the king's daughter. Uh, he keeps responding with that sort of humble answer. That, oh, no, he's not worthy. He's not worthy. Um, but, um, again, that doesn't make sense. With If, if you've truly been poor, um, why you wouldn't want to get lifted out of that poverty. And on that note, on that same 
on that note, that's how come I didn't read the last part of that verse out loud. If you've read with me before as a Christian, we have what Jesus says as our directives. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 37, for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. My understanding of that is our words, the things we say, the things we actually vocalize, not just reading them, but actually saying them out loud. And I say this only just in case it's your first time reading with me, um, that there's energy in the things we say, whether we mean there to be or not. So if you say that you are poor and lightly esteemed, then don't be surprised if you end up trapped in poverty and lightly esteemed, um, whether you mean to or not. So that's the only reason I didn't read that last verse there out loud. Even though I read it to myself and you could read it however you please and believe whatever you want. Uh, just so you understand why I read it the way I did and didn't read the whole thing out loud. So that's the answer that David's giving to the people who are urging him to marry um, the king's daughter. Verse 24. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. So the servants who were sent to persuade him to persuade David have returned to Saul and returned with the message that David said, basically that he's from Wayne's world. He's not worthy. He's not worthy. Verse 25, then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistine, Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So if you paid any attention to the news lately, the demonizing transgender people and particularly particularly, even the hypocrisy of saying that the Republican Party is all about parental rights and yet at the same time denying the rights of parents with transgender children to have gender affirming operations and medications issued to them is hypocritical. It's totally hypocritical and they label it as genital mutilation um, even though we're reading about genital, genital mutilate, mutilation right here. That's what they're talking about. They're saying that Saul wants David to cut off, circumcise the foreskin, and that means the penis, the skin around the head of the penis. That's what circumcision and foreskin entail. He's saying that that's what he wants as a reward, as a, as a trophy uh, from his enemies. He wants David to circumcise a hundred of the Philistines and to do that you basically have to kill them to get their foreskins off of them since they're foreigners who don't believe in circumcision, presumably, um, whereas the Israelites do. So he's saying that that's what he wants, David. That's what he wants instead of a money, monetary dowry for marrying his daughter. Instead, since he's saying the way the, the servants are reporting it back to uh, Saul, it seems to be saying that how could he be? Uh, Saul's son-in-law, how could he marry Saul's daughter since he couldn't possibly afford a dowry? In other words, a gift to the father who's giving away their daughter. So he's saying since he couldn't possibly afford that, Saul's saying, well, don't worry about paying him a dowry. Instead, just bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And again, to get those foreskins, he'd almost certainly have to slaughter a hundred of those Philistine soldiers and then cut off their the heads of their penises not the heads of their penises, the skin around the heads of their penises, which is genital mutilation in actuality. And how many churches or religious people, right-wing Republicans do you have here point to any of this mutilation of the genitals at all that goes on again and again and again in the Bible? It's complete hypocrisy. 
is one of the main genital mutilations that are mentioned in the Bible from jump, from I think from Genesis, maybe from Genesis. I'm pretty sure it is from Genesis. Is circumcision, and so it's okay to circumcise a baby who can't speak for themselves or uh, request such a thing, but it's not okay to give a gender affirming surgery to someone of age enough to know that that's what they want, or at least believe that that's what they want for themselves, even with their parental um, consent and permission and support. It makes no sense. The ridiculous things the right wing in America does, and when you really think about it, it's the same stuff that other religions do when it comes to um, sexuality around the world. And like I mentioned before, if you've read with me before, you know about the um, the documentary. Documentary I suggested you check out. It's called "Be Like Others." Um, it talks about uh, transgender people in Iran and that religion. But there's another. There's the Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. That's another documentary you may want to check out that also explores sexuality among another religion in Afghanistan and how surprising, how shocking to me they were in their approach to the same thing, sexuality and uh, gender expression. Um, it's no different than the way America, uh, the right wing in America, approaches the oppression and oppressing um, minorities in this country. It's very sick and it's very hypocritical to overlook things right there in the Bible that they thump and yet point to things that aren't even happening, just like critical race theory in school. It's not even being taught in schools. And yet uh, they point to that as the boogeyman to keep people scared and herded into a certain way of thinking that actually oppresses themselves. And it's so sick and frustrating to see that it continues to work election cycle after election cycle, um, put on a show, put on by the Republican Party, but then theatrics that are uh, supported by the Democratic Party. It's really, really sick. It makes you feel like you're trapped. And what real choice do you have when it comes to the political system in this country? It really seems that you don't have much choice when it comes to the political system at the top. It's, it really is a choice between uh, the lesser of two evils, if either one of them is even a lesser. It doesn't really seem like it sometimes. But anyway, back to the verses. Verse um, 25 is telling um, the, the messengers what it is they want, that Saul wants them to relay back to David, that he wants, as instead of a dowry, what he wants David to accomplish as far as the slaughter of the Philistines and taking off their foreskins, the foreskins of their penises, and bringing that to him as a dowry instead of money. And his real intent is that David will fall in the battle against those Philistines uh, trying to collect a hundred of their the skin off of their penises. It sounds like lunacy, but it is hard read. So verse 26, so when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. So, um, it pleased David because, okay, the king doesn't want me to come up with money for a dowry to basically purchase his daughter from him and become his son-in-law. Instead, he just wants him to go ahead and deal with a hundred penises and, and cut off the foreskins of them and bring them to him. So again, it sounds sick and twisted and it sounds like, how come churches don't discuss this? How come it's it's suppressed in any church I've ever been in? They don't talk about this at all. Instead, they demonize any 
interaction between men and other penises all together, even though there's example after example of it here in this chapter alone. Um, whatever the case may be, um, it's pleasing David to go ahead and deal with those hundred penises instead of having to come up with money to purchase uh, the king's daughter from him. And it says the days had not expired. It seems to be um, alluding to some sort of um, time limit put on um, marriage proposals. That And it, it sounds, marriage proposals is the euphemism for it, but truly it sounds more like a time limit put on a contract of marriage for purchase of his daughter so that the time hasn't expired for him to come up with the money to purchase his daughter from him, to purchase the king's daughter from the king. There's still time for you to go ahead and come up with that money, come up with that dowry as a euphemism for it, to purchase the king's daughter from him. Uh, it sounds really, really sick, but it's more of the patriarchy that exists throughout the entire Bible. And like I said before, except for the red letters of Christianity, the things Jesus says don't affirm any of these sorts of um, beliefs at all. But pretty much the rest of the Bible does. So it's always believe what you want, but um, that doesn't sound like equal rights to me. And it definitely doesn't sound like a God or Lord, or and in this case, a religion that respects everyone equally or sees everyone equally. It clearly does not. If you can buy and sell people, um, if they're of the of the, a certain gender or people, if they're of a certain race, or it just doesn't make sense that it's okay to um, go through all the miracles and things to release one people from enslavement, then turn around and tell them it's okay for them to enslave other people and even pass them down as property to their kids. And it is what we've read. So it's undeniably written in the Bible, but it seems to me that can't possibly be things from God Almighty, but instead things that people cook up, which most religion is, just things people cook up. Like Jesus says, uh, it's a mistake and it's what we should know as what the will of God is, is to know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or uh, if someone's just speaking on their own authority. Um, because one of the big mistakes that people make is conflating religion with Christianity. Christianity is those red letters, the things Jesus had to say, the things Christ had to say. That's what makes a Christian. Other things you may adhere to, they may even be in the Bible. They may be even be true, but that doesn't make them Christianity. It most likely, if they're in the Bible, just makes them religion. And like we've read again and again, there's lots of religions in the Bible, just as there are lots of different entities being identified or worshipped as God in the Bible different names of different entities that are translated to the word God or Lord in English, but in their original language are many different names other than just one. So just as a note to keep in your mind, keep in mind as we keep reading. Verse 27, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. So just like that, David took apparently an army that he had of men with him and killed not 100, but 200 of the Philistines and handled their penises because you have to handle a penis to do a circumcision to get to that foreskin. So he's handled now 200 penises 
cut off their foreskins and delivered them in full count to Saul, the king, since that's what he wanted as dowry or instead of a dowry for um, purchase of his daughter. And now it's happened. The contract has been completed and Michael, the king's daughter, has been given to David as his wife. Verse 28, thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. So now Saul sees what's going on around him. He sees that the Lord is working with David on David's behalf and allowing him to have victories like that over his enemies, over Saul's enemies, even to the point where he's able to perform uh, circumcisions on hundreds of them and um, deliver them in full count to be able to even purchase the king's daughter. And on top of it all, the king's daughter turns out she's got the hots for David too. So to Saul, it must feel like he's being isolated and being um, uh, written out of the book. Verse 29, and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. So Saul sees that the walls are closing in on him. David's becoming more and more powerful and more popular, even in his own family, now among his daughter, as well as his son, Jonathan. Um, so uh, it's caused him to hate David, basically, and be his enemy. Uh, and act out more and more. Verse 30, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. So now no longer is David just the poor guy with no name. Now he's the king's son-in-law married to the king, um, uh, um, married to the king's daughter and also rising in prominence among the people as a warrior by killing off all those Philistines, delivering the dowry to the king, and also now um, being valiant in victory beyond defeating Goliath, the giant, the champion of the Philistines, who seem to be at constant war with the people at this time in the story. Um, this is actually the last verse in the story of this chapter, though, so that's where we're going to end this reading. As always, I thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth and hope you'll join me again. Now, of course, I hope it's a blessing for you. I love you and I'll see you next time. Thanks again. God bless you. Peace be with you.